I'm Dan Restrepo, Director of the Americas Project here at the Center for American Progress. On behalf of the Center, and particularly those of us who work on the U.S. relationship with and place in the Americas, I want to welcome you here this morning for what I think and hope will be an informative and lively hour. On the afternoon of July 2nd, the world's attention turned to Colombia. In a welcome break with tradition, it did so because of good news, exceptionally good news. Colombian military intelligence and special forces managed to trick the Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, the FARC, into unwittingly handing over 15 hostages, some of whom had been held for more than 11 years under inhumane conditions in the Colombian jungle. We all joined in celebrating the freedom of Keith Stansel, Mark Gonsalves, Thomas Howes, former Colombian presidential candidate Ingrid Betancourt, and 11 Colombian police and soldiers. Securing the freedom of these 15 individuals was the latest and most significant blow against the FARC, who have terrorized the Colombian people for far too long. As evidenced by the outpouring from Bogotá to Medellín to Leticia to Paris to Miami to this very city and others around the globe last weekend, a clarion call has arisen for the FARC to release all of its remaining hostages, lay down its weapons, and renounce the use of terror. Even though that call sadly appears to have fallen on deaf ears within the FARC, many hope we have at last, after immense sacrifice and suffering, reached a decisive turning point in the path towards ending Colombia's internal illegal armed conflict. A tragic conflict marked by violence from the left and the right, from paramilitaries and guerrillas alike, violence fueled by a multi-billion dollar drug trade, violence that has created one of the world's largest internally displaced populations. A sad history of violent deaths cloaked in impunity and visited upon countless politicians, police, lawyers, judges, labor and other civic leaders, and innocent civilians. It is, however, undeniable that Colombia is safer and more secure today than it has been in more than half a century. The Colombian state is present throughout the country, perhaps for the first time ever. It is also unmistakable that Colombia's armed forces today are more professional, effective, and imaginative fighting force than ever before. But July 2nd and the events leading up to it did not magically make all of Colombia's deep-rooted challenges go away. Nor can we pretend that they put to rest all issues in the dynamic and complex U.S.-Colombia bilateral relationship. Much work remains to be done. But flowing from July 2nd, there is a hope that Colombia can continue to break with the past, continue its break with the past, and chart a more just and peaceful future. And that the United States, a long-standing and faithful friend of Colombia, can play a constructive role in the way forward. To give us his unique perspective on the events of July 2nd, what preceded it, and where the Colombian government hopes they will lead, we are joined today by Juan Manuel Santos, Minister of National Defense of Colombia. Minister Santos has one of the most distinguished records of public service in modern Colombia. Having served as Vice President, Minister of Foreign Trade, Finance Minister, and for the past two years, Defense Minister. His success in government has been matched by his success in the private sector as a journalist and entrepreneur. I could go on, but we would all prefer to hear from Minister Santos himself. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Juan Manuel Santos. Senor Ministro, thank you for being here with us today, and allow me to join all those who have congratulated you, the armed forces you lead, and all Colombians on the stunning success of July 2nd. Good morning, and uh, Dan, thank you very, very much uh, for this introduction, and thank you all for this opportunity and this invitation. I thought that uh, the best uh, use of this time and the most interesting way to go about this morning is to talk for about 20, 25 minutes and then uh, open it up uh, for questions. and. Uh, I was uh, told that uh, uh, it would be interesting to tell you a bit about the, the operation, uh, but I think it's also very important to uh, describe the context. What, what came before, what really uh, allowed us to do a, an operation of this kind, and what do we think uh, is going to be the consequences uh, what are the consequences of the operation and what, what do we think the FARC is going to do after this? 
let me start simply by saying uh, that uh, this has to do a lot with, with uh, the U.S. and Plan Colombia. Um, eight years ago, one tends to forget uh, very rapidly uh, situations that uh, change and you, you, you forget what Colombia was eight years ago. Uh, just to give you a, a quick picture, uh, eight years ago when President Clinton went to Cartagena, I happened to be also a minister at that time, minister of finance with under President Pastrana. Um, at that time, 480 mayors could not uh, work from their own towns. Uh, they had to go to somewhere else where they were safe. 480 out of uh, a bit over, a little over a thousand municipalities. So almost 35 percent of the mayors in Colombia could not work from their own towns. No Colombian dared to go with their families uh, on any road to the countryside. The fear of these uh, so-called uh, pescas milagrosas, uh, kidnappings either by the paramilitaries or the guerrillas. One third of the country was controlled by paramilitaries, another third by the guerrillas, and a third by the state. I could go on, but this was the picture in the, the year 2000. We were really on the verge of being declared, as you all know, a failed state. Then President uh, Uribe was elected. Uh, but before that, what was the first blow to the FARC? And I think we have to give credit to President Pastrana on this. Uh, the whole uh, peace process and the, the demilitarized zone was considered a failure, and it was a failure. However, politically, th that helped very much to, to unmask what the FARC was. And uh, both internally and internationally, the FARC, when Uribe was elected, uh, was in, in bad shape. They had lost a lot of their face, a lot of their political prestige, because of their, uh, the way they, they handled the generous uh, position that Pastrana offered them. And so th this was a, a, a major step backward for them and forward for the state. Then came President Uribe. He put in place what he called the democratic security. The word democratic uh, is not simply uh, an adjective uh, to, to simply name a policy. He really meant uh, democratic in two ways. Democratic <coughs> meant that he wanted security for everybody <coughs> in Colombia, everybody who would abide <coughs> by, the, by the rule of law. Uh, and um, he uh, said we have to protect every single Colombian who is within the rule of law. We will confront anybody who's outside that limit, but every Colombian, be it uh, from the left, from the right, uh, uh, union member, uh, uh, businessman, whatever, democratic means security for all. The other meaning of democratic security means we need to put in place a security policy uh, abiding by the laws and by the Constitution. Our Constitution uh, is uh, very uh, individual freedom-oriented, individual right-oriented. Uh, our Constitution is probably one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. Uh, we, we wrote the, Const the, the Constitution right after the Berlin Wall was, uh, was destroyed, was finished, and this avalanche of, uh, of uh, individual uh, rights, uh, the, the movements, all those n uh, nurtured the process of our, of the framing of our Constitution. So we have a very, uh, I don't know what the word in English, garantista, or word uh, uh, Constitution that really tries to concentrate on protecting the human rights and the fundamental rights of, of the citizens. So the President wanted to, to put in place, and he's managed to do so, uh, a security policy and at the same time respecting uh, the 
the individual rights. Usually, when there is a conflict, when there is a, a, some kind of challenge, uh, the, the individual rights are sacrificed um, and uh, the collective rights are, are put uh, on top. Not in this case. In this case, we've been trying to, to put the individual rights always in the forefront of our policies. That has made it more difficult. Uh, usually, some, they confront each other. But we've managed to, to, uh, to complement uh, this democratic uh, security, uh, in other words, bringing security, f abiding by the Constitution and by the law, and also bringing uh, security to the people. So th this was a basic premise when Uribe launched his democratic security policy. Uh, four years from the year 2000 to the year, to the year 2006, um, you all saw the tremendous progress in terms of security. Uh, he put in place different uh, strategies, different plans, and he was re-elected in the year 2006. Then the second phase of the democratic security uh, was put in place. We called it, and we, we um, discussed very much how to name it. And we decided to name it the consolidation of democratic security. And again, the word consolidation had two meanings. One, to consolidate and improve, if, we, if it was possible, the results of the first phase, uh, which were quite uh, outstanding. But even more important, the second meaning of the word consolidation is to consolidate something which was crucial, con consolidate the control of the Colombian state of the territory. Um, and as Dan said uh, in the uh, words uh, of introduction, probably for the first time in Colombia, since our independence, the state today controls uh, the whole of the Colombian territory. Uh, and that was a, a basic uh, objective, and we wanted to consolidate that control, because if you don't have the control of the territory, then uh, you have nothing. So we uh, concentrated, concentrated in consolidating the results and consolidating the control of the territory. It, how did, what changes were made from the, from the first phase <coughs> to the second phase um, in order to be able to consolidate the control of the territory? Well, first of all, we realigned, uh, maybe that's the correct word, realigned Plan Colombia. Uh, in what respect? Uh, we, the Plan Colombia has three, three uh, sort of three fronts, the military, the anti-narcotics, and the social. Um, those three actions, those three activities, were in a way administered independently. Uh, the military went where the uh, illegal armed groups were. Uh, the anti-narcotics action was concentrated, and is logical, obvious, where the coca was concentrated. And the social side went where it was most needed, where the, the poverty was more extreme. But what happened? That many times these actions uh, or uh, the areas were different. And the military went and uh, in a way cleaned uh, some, uh, cleared some areas. They went out and the guerrillas went back in. And they not only went back in, but they Retaliated, retaliated against the population who had in some way helped the military. So it was, became quite counterproductive. The narcotics, they went and they sprayed the areas that were where the coca was, was uh, cultivated, and they, they learned very, very fast how to anticipate uh, the spraying and replant the day after. Very, very fast. They were very ingenious. And so you saw replanting almost at an 80 or 85% rate. And the social 
investment, uh, the social aspect, was in a way uh, capitalized by the guerrillas because they know they knew where they was going. They went before and said, "We were going to bring you this X and Y." So the action, the social action, was even uh, being capitalized by the by the guerrillas. So what did we do? We started to align the three uh, at the same time, coordinated the military, the anti-narcotics, and the social. And that uh, was a key aspect to start consolidating the control of the territory, because that is the only way that you really can win the population to your side and win the control of the population. And we started to go in with the military, but not only with the military, we went with doctors, with teachers, uh, with judges. And one of the things, strangely enough, that people asked for as soon as they were, in a way, liberated, towns that were under the control of FARC for 35, 40 years, uh, when we went there and we said, what, what do you need? Said, Somebody to settle our disputes, because in the last 30 years, the disputes have been settled by the commander of the FARC. Even the, the personal disputes, if you have a divorce case or, or uh, a theft or whatever, that was, uh, was settled by the FARC. Now, they wanted uh, justice. It was, it was, for me, a surprise. So we went with the judicial system, with the registration for IDs. They had, they had uh, FARC IDs delivered to them. They had no other type of IDs. Uh, so we went with the state. And something very important, we went with the police. And the f one of the first things we've been doing is building bricks and cement, police posts. For them, for the population to, to uh, uh, realize that we really meant that we were staying there forever. Uh, and that was a key aspect, changing that apprehension, that lack of confidence that the population had in uh, the whole process. And slowly we've been uh, regaining the territory. Uh, we can say today that there is no, not one single munis municipality in Colombia that is not controlled by the state. Another very important aspect in the consolidation process, the respect for human rights, the, the, the way the military treat the population. We have been uh, telling them in every way possible, uh, you, are, you depend and your success depends on the approval and the support that the population gives, gives us and gives the military. Without that, you're dead. Nothing will work. And we have been making a tremendous campaign, launching a human comprehensive human rights policy, and this has been changing a lot to the point uh, that today, and I'm very proud to say this, the most popular institution in Colombia, by far, are our armed forces, our, our military and police, way above any other institutions, the church, the media, whatever. They are now the most popular institution. That is something I tell our men every single day. This is an asset that you have to nourish and 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 take care of every single day because that is what gives you legitimacy and that is what gives you uh, the base to be successful and and uh, obtain your objective <laughs> now um, we have also made other um, changes in order to to be able to to be more effective one of the changes was okay win the population over uh, they will give you information. They will, uh, it will allow you to hold the territory. But you have to change the procedures, uh, the way you operate. Uh, you, uh, you need uh, especially more intelligence. And we have made a tremendous effort in improving the quality and the quantity of our intelligence. From, say, um, uh, retraining the people who uh, who interview the, demob the demobilized uh, guerrillas, they were normal uh, petty officers who really were not experts in extracting 
the, the correct information. Uh, we have been retraining the analysts who get this information and put it into context. We've done a tremendous, tremendous effort to force the different forces and the police to work together. Uh, there is a, a trend, not only in Colombia, worldwide, uh, since information gives you power and, and, uh, and uh, if you withhold information, you feel more powerful, there was a, a, a tendency not to share information. Uh, well, we set up a structure where they were almost forced to share the information, and that started to, to become a, a virtuous circle because they, they started to share, and then the credit was, was given to everybody. Uh, I always, uh, when there is something good or something bad, all of the forces are present, uh, the, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the police, always, for the good or for the bad. We're a team, and, and that has worked very well. And it's worked because common sense tells you uh, if uh, you have uh, information uh, about X person, uh, you have a bit of information that the police has that by itself says nothing. And you have another information, maybe the Army or the Air Force, about the same individual or the same situation that by itself also means nothing. But when you unite the two, uh, suddenly you see a, a very clear picture and gives you a tremendous uh, advantage and a, and a very good information. That has been part of the process of, of, of the success and, and maybe all these uh, blows to the FARC that we have, uh, we have been able to, to give them to, to, to deliver in the last uh, 12, 18 months is due to that, to more information, teamwork, and uh, changing operations. Now, we have been, uh, we have a strategy. Uh, we go against the HVTs, the high-value targets. Who do we define as high-value targets? The members of the Secretariat and those key persons who are important either military or from the logistics. We have uh, identified them and we go after them. And the rest, we have launched a very aggressive demobilization uh, program to try to, to, to um, suck this, the, the, the base, the support of the guerrillas down through their families, uh, through all kinds of media, uh, propaganda, whatever. And this has been a very, very successful. We've been successful in striking the HVTs and um, convincing the people to, to surrender or to, to give themselves up. We have a special program. Uh, up to today, around 10,000 members of the guerrilla have demobilized. Each in, uh, individually is, is uh, accepted. Uh, he goes through the process and, and he is retrained. And one of the big challenges today is to how to reincorporate them in society. Uh, we, I could tell you how, about every, every operation in the last uh, 12 months, which is very interesting. The, for, for example, the Raul Reyes operation. Uh, the Raul Reyes operation, uh, simply I would say the following. It's not the death of Raul Reyes, which was important because it was the first member of the Secretariat. And that, that broke a myth that the members of the Secretariat were uh, simply above uh, any possible uh, uh, action of our armed forces. But what was important in the Ruralist operation was the information we got in the computers. That uh, nobody, nobody imagined, nobody imagined the importance of that information, what we found out, and how that has been helpful in the, in the rest of the process. Um, you all know of the different uh, operations we did, uh, what happened with the other members of the Secretariat, the death of Marulanda, uh, the key members of, of their military and the, the logistics, uh, people who became a legend, like uh, 
Martin Caballero, who controlled for 30 years the north of the country, like uh, the, this guy alias is uh, Negro Acacio. He controlled the whole drug traffic and arms traffic in the, in the east of the country. Uh, well, we've been going after the HVTs with tremendous success. And in the process of building intelligence, for example, we started for the first time doing operations simply to get in more intelligence. Before, the operations were always geared uh, after an HVT, after uh, uh, X group, but we started do, doing operations uh, to extract, uh, uh, to, to get more intelligence. And in the process, we've been telling the people of intelligence to be, to be audacious, to be creative, to think the unthinkable. Uh, and we press them. And uh, if you think things are crazy, well, we will decide if it's crazy or not. And this thing started to work. And suddenly, they came up with this plan, the Operación Jaque. The translation is check, jaque mate, checkmate. Um, and at the beginning, the reaction is, this is not possible. This is simply not possible. Uh, how do you think one could do this? And they, and they started saying, well, we think we can take advantage that Marolanda is dead, that they have, the FARC has a communications problem, a command and control problem, and we can, we have people infiltrated. Uh, I think we can pull it through. And what was it, what was the sort of the key aspect that made us and made me say, okay, go ahead? It's because these people convinced us, convinced me, that it was practically risk-free for the hostages, uh, because that was a major concern. We had, in, in, the, in, the, in the past, had located the, the, the kidnapped people, uh, even with some, in, in the past with the U.S. Armed Forces. We had located them. We saw the, the three Americans bathing in a river. But we didn't. We, had, we took no action because we had no control of, of of the situation, and the risk for the hostages was too high. But this time, it was almost risk-free. And I, I said, "Why do you say uh, it's risk-free?" And he said, very simply, because this plan, if they catch us before we arrive, they will simply go away, as they have done it. In the, in the past. They, they will simply, they know their jungle better than anybody else, they know it upside down, they will simply go away with the, with the hostages. If we're caught during the operation, which would last uh, initially was nine minutes, uh, between seven and nine minutes, since we are going unarmed, there would be no reason whatsoever for the guerrilla to take to, to take any action against the hostages. They will probably take actions against us. We, we are at risk, but not the hostages, which made sense. So that was sort of the, the detonator saying, okay, let's go ahead. Then the second sort of key uh, moment of, of, of the process was, uh, when, okay, when do I take it to the president? Um, and uh, um, we told them, using the analogy of, 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 of a fisherman, okay, I'll take, I'll, take him, I'll take it to the president to have the uh, final go-ahead when the fish has caught the bait, has, is, is hooked. And uh, they said, okay, and what, what do you need as proof? Uh, you, you tell me. You, you tell me. And they ca came up with the information that the hostages were divided in three groups and that they would, had managed to give the orders for the three groups to unite in one single group. And we were able to confirm that those orders were being carried through. And then that was when I said the, the fish caught the bait and that's when I went to the president.
and the president gave the final go-ahead. At that time, um, there was a lot of preparations. It was like a Hollywood studio. Uh, there were, we call them the novel and the actors. There was uh, one who uh, acted as an Italian, another that ac acted as an Australian, and if you see him, he is a, a person who could very well be in, uh, extracted from Crocodile Dundee, that movie. You know? And another one was an Arab. Uh, there, were the three, there were two Caribbean, one Cuban uh, and one probably Dominican. Those were the ones who had a T-shirt of Che Guevara. It was five. There was a doctor, a real doctor, a nurse, a journalist, and a cameraman from Telesur. Uh, so there was nine, nine uh, that were drilled 24 hours a day uh, in, in their own uh, script. They, they knew the script. They had IDs. Uh, they set up a, a fashad, a, a, a fake humanitarian uh, uh, organization. Um, and they had to learn uh, their lives because if they had, were caught or asked and they did not respond correctly, they would be dead. Uh, so they were drilled, but we, we had a, a problem and I had to take a decision at that time. The, the operation was carried the 2nd of July, uh, but it was planned for about the th between the 11th and the 13th. Uh, and I said, what are the risks if the if the if the fish already caught the bait? The risk today, from from now onwards, is any information arriving to them that will tell them this is a fake, this is not true. And the more time we use, the higher the risk. So let's accelerate this. And I ask uh, General Montoya, how long will it take to have the helicopters ready? And he said, well, in 24 hours or maximum 36 hours, they'll be painted and ready. And so I said, so then in 24 hours or 36 hours, as soon as they're ready, we launch the operation. So instead of being the 11th or 13th, it was launched the 2nd of July. Um, an important aspect, and I think this is, and I'm, I'm proud to say this, uh, uh, when we were planning the operation, uh, the the ones that decided or suggested or proposed not to shoot, not to do anything with the guerrillas that were left after the helicopters took off. There were a whole lot of, I mean, there were more than 80 guerrillas concentrated. They were there like si sitting ducks. And it was the military who said, no, no, let's leave them alone. Let's not even capture them, nothing. Let's make this a absolutely clean operation. Not one drop of blood, not one uh, uh, shot. And it was their suggestion. It, was, it wasn't mine, it wasn't, it wasn't the president, it was them, the military, who suggested that. And that the, was the way it was, it was uh, done, without one single shot, without one single drop of blood. Um, I could go on giving you details, there's a lot of details, but uh, you'll probably see it in a movie or something. <laughs> uh, um, the, the question now is, is okay, what happens after this? What, what's the situation of the FARC? There's, there's something that, if, if there's a message, I want you to, to understand, to internalize of, of, of this uh, uh, short conference or short uh, uh, speech, is that the FARC are weakened, yes, but they are not defeated. And we would commit a tremendous mistake to think uh, that we have won, that they're really defeated, they're not. They still have around 7,000 people in arms. Uh, their capacity to, to reborn, to recreate, to re-strengthen, to re uh, realign is, is high. Uh, so we must continue with the pressure. 
And at the same time, at the same time, we have always told them there is a generous hand of the government if they want to negotiate. Um, they have never, they have never wanted to negotiate. Uh, they are the ones that have said, "We don't talk with President Uribe. We don't talk with the government of President Uribe." It has not been the government that has said we don't talk to the FARC. Uh, this is something which is very important to, to take into account. Uh, we have reiterated, the President himself has said, the only, uh, the only factura, how do you say, the, the only bill or w that we, we want in this operation uh, that we would like to have uh, sort of uh, paid is peace with the FARC. Hopefully, hopefully, the combination of what has happened in the last year, year and a half, plus what happened, plus this operation, plus what happened last 20th of July, this is extremely, extremely symbolic. We never thought that something like that could occur. We thought that the, f the, the demonstration of the f 4th of February uh, was the biggest we had ever had and we could have uh, in our country. But well, what happened the 20th of July was much, much bigger. A demonstration against the FARC, against the kidnappings, uh, and that politically uh, has to have an effect. And we know through the demobilized people and through even the kidnapped people that sometimes discuss with them that this type of demonstration is extremely, extremely important uh, politically. Uh, so we hope that they they come into their senses and 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 look for a way to to start some kind of a negotiation. Uh, we tell them, and I I believe this is so. If they don't seize the moment, the opportunity, in a year, two years, uh, they would have no bargaining chips, because the momentum is in our side. Militarily, we're doing we're we're on the offensive. Uh, we're doing very well, and it's like a, a snowball. We are having more and more information. Uh, the demobilized people, uh, the demobilization process is is working extremely well. The the profile of the people who are giving themselves up have been, has been changing uh, dramatically. Now it's people that that have 15, 20 years with the guerrillas that say we simply uh, give ourselves up because we know there's no future, and they give us very, very good information, and that feeds the process. Um, if we are able, if we are able to really stop any cooperation from outside, uh, I think they have no alternative but to negotiate, or the the, the, the other scenario is uh, they will simply uh, separate themselves in different groups and uh, end up uh, like the, what was left of the paramilitary groups, like criminal bands uh, dedicated to drug trafficking, uh, trying to get control of some, some part of the territory to be able to, to, to uh, export the drugs and, and simply uh, become criminals with no ideology. Today, uh, if you ask me, there's a lot of people who say, no, Cano is a more, um, more intellectual. He, come, he, has a, he went to university. He has more of a political approach. Um, I have my doubts. I have my doubts. Um, he uh, sometimes has the, what the people in the extreme left call the urban, urban uh, complex. What, what, what is that? Marulanda was, was a campesino. He was the pure rural guerrilla. He was the authentic. People who come from the city, those are, are not the, the, the real guerrilla. And uh, when you have th that type of complex, you become more radical. You want to show yourself to be more, more aggressive and more radical than the campesino. And maybe Cano has this type of urban complex. They are suffering of, of a 
severe command and control problem and communication problem. We know that uh, the appointment of Cano, uh, done simply by appointing him uh, with a finger, not through the process that the FARC had established uh, for to, to appoint the commander, has uh, created a lot of, of internal problems. There has been this traditional um, um, jealousy between Hohoi, which is the other, what, what is, who is considered the, the real military commander, and Kanu, that uh, these divisions have been aggravated after this uh, operation. Um, so we don't really know what's going to happen with the FARC. Um, we hope that they come to their senses. Um, we have, as I said, our offer on the table. We're, we're not going to take that offer away. If they want to negotiate, we're willing to negotiate, but negotiate seriously. We have learned through experience many, many examples that they sometimes, or they have always used uh, the negotiations to simply strengthen themselves, to take oxygen, to uh, revive themselves. Uh, we will not allow that. But if they really want to negotiate, and as even Fidel Castro is saying today, uh, the this armed uh, uh, struggle today, uh, FARC style, is completely anachronic. This is something of the past uh, today, especially with a, a democratic government. Um, Colombia, Colombia, and this is one of, I will finish with this, um, if, if you tell me what has been one of the most positive uh, consequences of, of Plan Colombia, of the U.S. help, of, of all this that has happened, is that our democracy is much, much stronger. Um, we have gone through many uh, uh, severe frictions. Um, what, what you're seeing, the scandals of the paramilitary, parapolitics, and members of Congress in jail, uh, this is uh, due to what has been happening with our institutions, uh, that the judicial system uh, is capable of trying and putting in jail a, a large number of people who are members of Congress. That, that in, it, in itself, yes, it's a scandal, but deep inside, that means that democracy is working. And uh, even this uh, clash between what the president says uh, to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says to the president, uh, I, I'm reminded when uh, President Roosevelt uh, had a problem with the Supreme Court in the New Deal. Uh, it's it's th those type of, of confrontations that at the end will consolidate the independence of the powers. And we think uh, today, and you go and make an overview of, of Latin America, that uh, our democracy, as, as we define democracy, the different definitions of democracy now in, in Latin America, but our definition, I think we are a much stronger democracy, uh, and that we're a much better country, and that the opportunities of our people, all of them, uh, are much better today than they were eight years ago. And that's why I say that, uh, in a way, Plan Colombia has been the most successful bipartisan uh, foreign policy initiative that the U.S. has made in the recent past. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, there's a lot, uh, a, a lot of places to start, and I'm going to Warn the, warn the audience that I'll be turning to you in a moment for questions um, that I will very much greatly appreciate if they're in the form of a question uh, rather than a statement masquerading as a question. And I'm going to take the prerogative and ask the first question um, of Minister Santos. And I'm going to go back to the beginning, uh, the first part of your speech, and the context and your description of the consolidation of democratic security. A lot of that sounds very consistent with what people who have been dubbed critics of Plan Colombia in the United States describe. That building on the security gains that Colombia has managed over the initial phase of Plan Colombia and democratic security, it's time to diversify what we're doing, to diversify um, 
not just what the Colombian government is doing, but how the United States plays a role in that process. We are obviously in appropriation season here in Washington. Um, this is a question that is very much on the minds of many people. Um, is there a tension between the desire of some to see a more integrated approach of U.S. funding to Colombia uh, as part of Colum Plan Colombia, the continuation of Plan Colombia, or is that is is that a false choice? I think it's a choice that that is not mutually exclusive; it complements itself. But we would make a we would make a tremendous mistake of weakening the security part uh, at this moment. We. We, we're winning, but we have not, not won yet. Uh, we have 80 or 90 percent of the river crossed, but we still need 10 percent more. If we take away the military support now, the whole process could, could go backwards. So I would say, yes, let's give more emphasis, and we are giving more emphasis in our own budget to the social part. Uh, we have a, 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 a policy or a program called Acción Integral. The armed forces are going uh, with uh, the presidency to the regions, uh, investing in in education, in roads, in infrastructure, in uh, in doctors, uh, because we know that's a fundamental part of the consolidation. But uh, I would say that they should not be a, a, a zero-sum game. Uh, don't weaken the military now, because then how can you go to to the to the territories and do your social work? if you don't have still the security guaranteed. So see, there we go. Um, we're now going to open it up to questions. I'm going to take a handful of questions at a time um, just to facilitate the process. Again, if you could identify yourselves uh, when the microphone gets to you and keep these to brief questions, I'd greatly appreciate it. I'm going to start with Mark right here. Mr. Minister. Uh, first, congratulations on the rescue of uh, the hostages. And uh, I think that, as uh, um, you just heard, I think most of us uh, agree with much of your presentation with the sense of yes, but. And um, uh, let me just quickly, um, on the question of human rights, yes, there has been progress, but there still are major concerns. The UN High Commission for Human Rights continues to note extrajudicial uh, executions. Um, on the question of, of Plan Colombia, yes, no question, it's done a tremendous amount in terms of security. Um, but I, I think you just, in your answer just now, uh, you indicated that there's a certain separation between the social and the military. And, and I think that the question is, when you talk about the integrated consolidation, um, that program, the CKI, still doesn't have legal authorization. There's no, if there's no law, there's no executive decree that establishes it. There's a very limited uh, call on resources from other ministries to participate in that effort. And it seems to me that the question is, how are you going to, in a sense, move from six or 13 pilot districts to much of rural Colombia? And the second is on Venezuela. You haven't mentioned Venezuela at all. There was just a summit meeting between President Chavez and President Uribe. And the question is, does something concrete come out of that in terms of cooperation between Venezuela and Colombia uh, to stop, let's say, FARC from uh, moving across the border, finding sanctuary in Venezuela, and to stop the drug trafficking that now has about at least 250 metric tons of cocaine coming out of Colombia, going through Venezuela uh, to the various markets, including the United States. Before you answer that, I'm going to try again for somebody to ask a question back there. <laughs> Minister, Minister Santos, my name is Mario Osorio. I am a student at Universidad de los Andes in Colombia. Uh, first of all, let me extend my congratulations to you and the armed forces for a very su successful operation. I can say in, in Colombia, uh, it was an unimaginable feat. Uh, most of us never imagined that anything of this could be achieved. Uh, and, and that day, July 2nd, I felt very proud uh, to be a Colombian and to bear the Colombian passport. Um, However, and, and now this is gearing to my question, um, I also uh, don't remember ever being as, as crushed by a single piece of news as the day that I read on, on CNN that uh, one of the uh, agents enrolled in the mission had actually used a bib with the Red Cross symbol on it. Uh, 
And my question, uh, not at all intended uh, to cast a shadow over the success of the mission, which was, I, I recall, very successful, uh, but, but merely to understand, as, as a scholar, the, the reasoning behind what ensued on July 2nd. Uh, my question is this. Considering um, uh, the, the very high profile and the, the very um, scrutiny of the mission, uh, considering the, the, the fact that this mission was probably taped in its entirety, and considering that from any, any time from 10 to 12 uh, hours passed from the moment the mission ended uh, and the moment the president uh, addressed the nation, uh, regarding this uh, usage of the Red Cross symbol. Um, why, or, or rather, what was the reasoning behind advising him to deny as emphatically as he did any, any usage of that symbol when in fact it would seem otherwise that there was uh, in fact en enough time for him to, to see in these videos the, the evidence? Thank you. Okay, while everybody works on narrowing their questions to questions, I'll turn it back over to the minister for uh, the first two sets. I'll, I'll uh, start with your last question and then address uh, the two issues. Uh, the, this incident with the Red Cross, um, why did the president deny it? Because there were strict orders. His orders, my orders, the commander of the armed forces, and the commander of the army. No usage of uh, legal... Uh, respected international institutions. Yes, we built a fashet, uh, 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 um, a, a organization that w did not exist. Uh, we named it. We did all the uh, the emblems and everything. But why? What happened? Uh, this is what I call the human touch of this operation. Uh, only God is perfect, and the, the operation had to had a human touch. What happened really? And. Uh, and this is, in a way, moving. When the commander of the army put the nine people uh, in, in a row and said, you might not come back from this operation. This is a very high-risk operation. You will be shot on the spot or maybe kidnapped for 10, 15 years. That's anybody wants to not go. And everybody said, no, no, we will go. This officer, he's a captain, he says, he confesses, I, I got panicked, but I wanted to go. And he started to, to in a way, administer his, his fear. Uh, and uh, he thought up, he, he thought in, in the last resort, I will take a, what they call a peto, this is a, the Red Cross symbol, just in case. Uh, didn't tell anybody. Uh, what happened in the in the operation? He, coincidentally enough, was the one who had to uh, sort of make a an overview of of the terrain when the helicopter was arriving, and he was the one who saw that full of guerrillas, uh, well armed, and he was the first one who had to go out. He was the Arab one. By, by, as a matter of fact, he was the Arab actor. And he was the first one who had to go out to appear. Uh, and at the same time, there was a communications from the head, uh, supposed, supposedly the, the head of the operation, the Italian, had to communicate through radio, through a frequency, with Alia Cesar. And he started to call on him, and there was no answer. No answer, and, ne and he never answered. This captain says, uh, I panicked. And right before going out, I put the Red Cross thing on. Uh, why did the president insist? Because we really di didn't know that that really had happened. They had, they had not told us. We, I, I went uh, a day after the operation to Istanbul from there uh, the president and myself, we ordered an investigation, and when I came back from Istanbul, we were told, yes, this happened. And that's when we went out, that Caracol uh, Television was the first one who suggested that that might have happened. Uh, we, we didn't give credit to that. We, d we thought that that had not happened. Uh, but after the investigation, we did, I 
I asked the Red Cross people to come to my house. I was, I, I was uh, ill at that moment. In my pajamas, I told them, uh, this happened, I'm very sorry. They understood very well. And this is really a minor incident in terms of, of, of the operation. There was the usage of, of, of the bad usage, and we, we accepted and we regretted, and it's bad that that happened. But it wasn't for a military gain. Uh, we had legally there's no no nothing wrong has been done we did not uh, take advantage militarily of that uh, bad usage and yes it was it was a mistake and that was what happened human rights we are the first ones to acknowledge we're not perfect the military uh, still have problems we're addressing those problems you know very well that we're doing every effort possible the British saying we're doing too, too much in, in terms of, of pushing too hard on, the, on, on this issue. And I think we have made a tremendous progress, but yes, we, we still have a lot of progress to, to make. Um, and uh, Venezuela, I promised myself I would not uh, mention the C word uh, during this trip. <laughs> I'm gonna uh, open it up to three more questions. Um, if people can keep these as questions, I'd greatly appreciate it. I'm asking the indulgence of the minister to stay for a couple extra minutes. In the second row. I'm Kearney Chesson with the Journal of Electronic Defense. Uh, the field really admires the clever operation. One of the other sides besides the intelligence, the human intelligence, was the use of uh, signals intelligence, radios, and that sort of thing. Could you expand on that a little bit for us, please? And I take sitting right there. No, no, no. Keep going. Right there. I'll make this as brief as possible. Um, my question is just regarding the reports that came out in the following couple of days after the um, the rescue operation that uh, um, the claims that there had been a $20 million um, reward paid. Um, and also there was another report that this wasn't a long-term operation, that this was something that just the, the, the Army kind of jumped in at the end and then kind of made up this story about it being this long-term infiltration. And I'm wondering, well, obviously the Colombian government has denied these charges. What I'm wondering is, if these charges are inaccurate, you know, why are they being made? What is the reasoning behind those charges being made? Um, and why is the media why has the media picked up on them and reported them? One all the way in the back. Uh, Minister Santos, uh, Douglas Farah, just uh, two quick questions. One is, Mono Hohoi really as ill as they say, and is he incapable of taking command? And you said that uh, Kano was picked without the normal process. Who picked him then if they didn't go through the secretariat process? Thank you. And I'm going to violate my own rule and ask one additional question because of a development that happened over the weekend that I, I'm very curious about. Um, and that is after a lot of um, reticence, perhaps, about the South American Defense Council, uh, the decision to move forward in that direction. Um, what, why now? And what does Colombia expect from, the, from participation in that process? Okay. Um, radio signals, um, yes, they had a lot to do with it. Um, I cannot go into details for obvious reasons, but uh, that was a fundamental part of, of the whole novel, uh, and they helped a lot. Um, why did these accusations of, of uh, the reward? We have a very um, aggressive uh, reward pro program. We, ha we would have no problem whatsoever of accepting that we paid. We even have offered up to a hundred million dollars if they give us the kidnapped people. Um, so there would have been no problem in 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 this being a way to retrieve the hostages. But the reality is that we paid zero, not one single peso. Uh, why were they making these accusations? Because people, and we 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 saw it very clearly, uh, people who are Friends of the FARC uh, couldn't believe that w what, what happened. That there was such a blow to the FARC, and they, they would have to, uh, in a way, demerit 
the, the operation. Try to, in some way, try to say, no, no, the, the, the armed forces cannot be, are not able to uh, do this. This is a, a stage. And uh, that was, uh, in a way, complemented at the beginning with the first FARC communique, but then they denied it. And the people uh, that were caught, alias uh, Cesar and, and Gafas, uh, they, they, they are, and through their lawyer, denying that in every, every way possible. And in a way, if that had happened for the FARC, it would have been worse for their prestige, for their dignity of selling themselves off for a bunch of dollars. Uh, th that would have been more detrimental to them. Um, that the military jumped, uh, I, I've never heard that before, that at the, at the very uh, last day and then suddenly uh, they made this up. Uh, a lot of stories could come up with, uh, with the, these type of theories, but the facts are there. Uh, Mono Hohoi, is he ill? Yes, we, we have confirmation that he's ill. Uh, you've probably seen the, the photographs of Mono Hohoi uh, some years ago quite uh, fat, uh, robust, and today he's quite thin and in bad shape. He has uh, uh, diabetes and he's having uh, problems. And uh, uh, who appointed Kano and uh, how was he appointed? He was apparently appointed by, by the secretariat, uh, but the procedures or by, or by some members of the secretariat, we, we really don't know exactly how he was appointed. But what we know is that the, what they call the Estado Mayor, which is a, a much broader uh, sort of uh, organization or broader level than the Secretariat, which has more power than the Secretariat, they never, um, they never uh, took any decision. They, they were not even informed, many of them, about the death of Marulanda. And that's why I say that the problems of command control are serious problems and the communications are serious problems that we have now. The South American Defense Council. We received um, some months ago the Minister of Defense of Brazil with this initiative. Uh, we we um, didn't understand very well what was this Defense Council for. And we thought uh, that uh, uh, simply on a pros and cons that uh, we would not like to be a member. And we said no. Um, then President uh, Uribe went to Brasilia. And uh, there he again said no. And uh, President Bachelet said, well, uh, President Uribe is right that we still don't have a very clear concept of what this is for. Uh, let's, let's create a working group, a very technical level, to try to define what this could do. This is uh, uh, not a military alliance, but then uh, what would this be created for? The group uh, uh, got together about a month ago, less than a month ago in, in Chile. They worked some things out. We still didn't see very clearly what this was for. Uh, and uh, President uh, Lula went to Colombia just a couple of days ago. Uh, we sat down and um, he said, why, why are you saying no? And, they said, and then we said, well, because we don't know exactly what you're offering us. Because we don't see this very clearly. Is this an anti-American or is this the what Chavez? Uh, sorry for uh, breaking my promise. Uh, uh, is is uh, is uh, is is uh, really anti-NATO? Uh, what is it? And uh, he said, "Well, no. This is uh, has to be a a very low-key uh, organization, simply to exchange experiences and maybe uh, try to." complement uh, the industries, the military industries, and uh, ex uh, exchange uh, officers uh, or uh, people from the academies. And, and, and so we said, OK, but we, we have some conditions. And uh, we put some conditions. The first one is uh, 
every single decision will be taken by consensus. So nobody can sort of uh, override us. Second, that uh, this, if in their statutes, when they, they are uh, written, they have to be an explicit condemnation of illegal armed groups. And he said, okay, yes. Uh, third, there is no restrictions whatsoever in any member country making alliances with third parties, third countries. For example, Colombia, US. Perfect, no problem. So with these conditions, we, uh, President Uribe and President Lula called Bachelet, President Bachelet. She said, well, those are my conditions also. Uh, so if, if that is so, uh, we will then uh, agree to, to be part. And that was what happened. Uh, if you ask me what is this for, I still don't know. Uh, but, uh, but with these conditions, we, we, don't, we, we feel there's no, no threat in, in becoming a, a member. We'll, we'll all find out together what it's for. <laughs> um, again, I'd join me in thanking all of you for coming and for S Minister Santos for the very interesting and informative session. Thank you very much. <laughs>